turn in our Bibles to the book of Jude, studying the book of Jude on Sunday mornings. It's the next to last book in the Bible. If you go to the uh, back of the Bible, you'll hit the book of Revelation. Keep going and you'll hit a single page, and that is the book of Jude. And while we're finding our way there, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we're studying the gospel according to Luke presently. Six o'clock this evening, each of you are invited. We'll pick things up in verse 5 and read through verse 11, but we'll make uh, our uh, main focus the end of verse 8 and then 9 and 10 this morning. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their first estate, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a uh, similar manner uh, to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us, the love that we've just sung about. And we are so grateful for a love that is so secure and so wonderfully and perfectly and permanently demonstrated in the gift of your Son. Come to provide us with salvation and at such enormous expense to himself and to you. We are grateful to be your children, grateful to be saved, grateful to be able to turn to your book today and ask that as we've lived in this world now another week and it has endeavored to conform us into its image in all kinds of different ways, that you would use your word to wash us, to cleanse us, and to further conform us into the image of our Savior, the image of Jesus Christ today. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit, the only one who can accomplish that in our lives this morning through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this letter, uh, Jude calls on us as Christians to contend earnestly for this uh, priceless thing that has been entrusted to us as Christians, something that he calls uh, the faith. And that is the doctrinal foundation of Christianity as it's found in the Word of God and the truths that we believe in as Christians. And he tells us, as we've seen, that the faith is never to be compromised, and the faith is never to be surrendered 
uh, by any Christians, whether Christians, all of us collectively worldwide, or by any individual uh, Christian in any age of the church, including our own. Jude then identified for us two false doctrines that constitute uh, an attack upon the faith in any age against which always a battle has to be waged, and uh, including those who hold these doctrines and yet consider themselves to be Christians. Jude told us that they are people who turn the grace of God into lewdness. They advance the idea uh, as uh, declaring themselves to be Christian and this to be a Christian idea. They advance the idea that you can live any way that you want as a Christian. You can violate any and all of God's uh, commandments in His book that you choose to, and you don't have to worry about it because God's grace will cover it. The second, and so they reject the moral demands of Christianity. The second of their great doctrines that Jude is dealing with here is that they are denying, they deny the lordship of God the Father in the Christian life, and they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in the Christian life. And so they advance the idea that you can know Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to really make Him your Lord or to make Him your Master. In verses 5 through 11, as we saw last time, Jude provides us with the description of the characteristics or the personality traits or the natural bent of these false teachers or these false influencers with three great things in mind. Number one, so that we can recognize them for who they are when they endeavor to bring us under uh, their uh, influence. And so the recognition that these heirs, these false doctrines that they are advancing, uh, that these things come out of uh, the, this character flaws that are at the core of their, their false teaching. And the second thing is in order that he would expose what these people are really uh, like in terms of their character and, and uh, dominated by their personality traits and so forth, that if we recognize those same traits as dominant uh, natural characteristics in our own life, then to realize that to, to, to the degree that they exist within us is the degree to which we are more vulnerable to the lies that they are advancing. And so to have those things exposed in our lives, so often we can consider them to be virtues, and we recognize, no, they are not virtues. They are dangerous in my life, and they make me vulnerable to this uh, kind of uh, error. And then third, in, in, as God exposes them here in terms of their character, for us to then realize what they are at their core. So they present so often as very sincere, very humble, very uh, meek, innocent kind of people. And God says, beneath that veneer, this is what they really are from the vantage point of uh, heaven. And so we saw uh, last time in verse 5, they view obedience to God's commandments as purely optional. Uh, in verse 6, they're rebellious against authority in general, uh, even against God's authority. 
uh, in verse 7, they are especially rebellious towards God's commandments related to sexual purity. In verse 8, they live sexually immoral lives, and when confronted with their sin as a justification for their open rebellion against God's commandments, they claim special revelation from God uh, that tells them that they can engage in immoral lives and that God is okay with that. And then in verse 8 as well, they not only uh, reject the authority of the Bible in their lives, but they reject all other God-given authority within the church. Pastors, elders, other kind of leadership within the church, when they come and uh, confront them with their error, confront them with their sin, uh, uh, they refuse to uh, repent of the sin and the false doctrine. And so we come now to continue that list of characteristics in verse, uh, the end of verse 8 and end of verse 9, where Jude tells us that they speak evil of dignitaries. That is, as a, an, an additional evidence of their carnality and their ungodliness, they thought nothing and think nothing of slandering and blaspheming angels uh, if required to defend uh, their heresy. One of the uh, many historical activities of angels, as they're described in the Bible, is the role that the angels uh, played in the giving of the law of Moses to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. And Moses, who was obviously present there, uh, wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 1 and 2, he described the angelic presence that was a part of that scene as well. He wrote, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with... 10,000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Speaking of the angelic host that was present in this uh, majestic event. The Apostle Paul and the writer of the book of Hebrews speak to this same issue in the New Testament. And they tell us not only were the angels present at this particular event, but the law was in some way uh, conveyed in an orderly way through them. Paul writing to the church in Galatia, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? That is the law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions till the seed, speaking of Jesus, should come with the promise uh, who, to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed, speaking of the law, through angels by the hand of a mediator. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, think, speaking of the law of Moses, and every transgression and disobedience uh, received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And somehow these false teachers, these uh, false Christians, in their willingness to discredit anyone and everyone, 
associated with God's Word in the Bible, because the Bible stands as the lone thing that exists in the entire world uh, from their views prevailing ultimately in human history. And, uh, and, and their willingness to discredit anyone associated with God's Word was their willingness to slander and blaspheme even the good angels. Indeed, as, as Moses put it, uh, the ten thousands of holy ones who played a part in the giving of the law of, of Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, in order to show uh, from the vantage point of heaven just how what a stunning arrogance that this is. Now, we live in this world, so we are used to stunning arrogance, uh, whether in our own lives or in the lives of other people or in the lives of government or in the lives of what? I mean, on a day-in and day-out basis. But understand, God is talking about when He sees these very same things that we can grow very used to, how they're viewed from the vantage point of heaven. And, I, and so he talks about the sense of self-importance that would be required in a human being to not only attack uh, pastors or elders or whoever uh, would confront them in their practice of their sin and their indoctrination, but even to be able to attack angels in uh, in, in, order to, uh, uh, in order to advance their idea. And, what, and the arrogance here is demonstrated when Jude co- contrasts them with Michael the archangel's dispute with the devil over uh, Moses' body at uh, the time of Moses' death, as he speaks about it there in verse 9. We don't know a lot about all of this in the Bible, but we know enough about it. In just a couple of verses, God gives us all we need to know about Moses' death and his burial. And that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, was, and he that is God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old. When he died, his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor uh, abated. And so the Lord buried Moses in such a way that no one would know where his grave was. Probably for the simple reason that if his body was placed somewhere, that the Jews would, because of the, the greatness of Moses in Jewish history, that some kind of a shrine would be uh, uh, built there, which ultimately with the children of Israel would uh, lead to some kind of idolatry. And so God said, I will take care of his burial and will remove that as a temptation from uh, the children of Israel. And here in Jude we learn that the uh, archangel Michael was given uh, the charge of the task of burying him, and, uh, and that in the course of obeying God in the burial of Moses, that Satan appeared on the scene, and he disputed with Michael 
uh, over Moses' body. And Satan didn't care anything about the fact that, that Michael had been given a commandment by God to bury Moses. He comes in defiance of that, that command uh, to Michael. And uh, unlike these false Christians, Michael did not only did not revile uh, good angels as they were doing, but he didn't even respond with a v- reviling accusation against the devil himself. Uh, he simply dispatched the devil with the words, the Lord rebuke you. He, he commended the devil to uh, the, uh, the Lord with his, his uh, dispute and his desire to have the body of Moses. And so the dispute between Michael and uh, Satan is detailed in an ancient Jewish book entitled The Assumption of Moses. And it's very important to realize that when uh, Jude quotes from that ancient Jewish book, he is not declaring that the entire book is inspired uh, or that all of it is trustworthy. There's just this section that the Holy Spirit recognizes to be accurate, and it gives clarity to Jude's point, and so he uses it. Remember the Apostle Paul several times in the New Testament, not commonly, but at least a half dozen times, it's, uh, as you would read his sermons and read his letters, he uh, would quote uh, Greek poets. He would qu- quote uh, Greek uh, philosophers. He would quote sayings that were common within the culture at that time to illustrate the point that he was trying uh, uh, to make or to, to uh, I- I advance that. In the same way that you have Bible teachers uh, all of the time, and they might uh, quote a truth spoken by Napoleon or spoken by Abraham Lincoln or spoken by Churchill in order to illustrate a point or uh, to advance a truth in the the same way. The assumption of Moses, when it, it adds some details related to this, this dispute that occurred between the devil and and Michael the archangel, is apparently as Michael the archangel was going about his business to obey God's commandment here, uh, Satan came on the scene and demanded the body of Moses. And he did so on the basis of the fact that Moses was a murderer. And you might remember that Moses did kill that uh, taskmaster who was beating the Jews while Moses was uh, the son of Pharaoh, adopted son of Pharaoh in Egypt, and he took that man's life in, uh, in defending his, uh, his people there in that bondage of Egypt. And so Satan comes on the scene and says, oh, no, 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 you, uh, 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 by virtue of his murder, he belongs to me to do with, I, for me to do with his body as I choose to do with his body. And then uh, uh, and Michael, again, did not bring a, a reviling accusation against him, simply left the matter with God, saying, the Lord rebuke you. And the point that Jude is making in this is that while we must contend earnestly for the faith as Christians, every generation of Christians must do that, and uh, uh, even as Michael the archangel had to even contend for the faith and obeying God's command to him to bury the, the, the body of, uh, of Moses and pushing back against the devil. Uh, but unlike uh, those we're resisting, 
We are not to do it in a conscientious, a, a, a contentious rather, way, but by standing on God's Word. The fight is always against God's Word. We personalize it so we get angry. Uh, we love the Lord so we get impatient at the irreverence. But they're not really fighting against us. Uh, they're fighting against the standard of God's Word that we are obeying and that we are endeavoring, endeavoring to advance as Christians uh, in, in the world. And so we stand on God's Word. Let it do uh, the rebuking. And it's the Word of God that gives us our authority anyway. So we don't come down to their level with blasphemies and revilings and evil speaking as, as Jude uses language for them. Facts are stubborn things, and they're never more stubborn than when they're found in, in the Bible. And so when we quote them, to uh, quote God's Word to a person and then leave them with God, God knows how to take and, and carry it the rest of the way. Paul wrote about this, uh, uh, the importance of this in writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not uh, uh, quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to speak, teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And so the fight against this kind of thing is always the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And to simply say, this is what the Bible says. These are my marching orders as a Christian. You say you're a Christian and you have different marching orders. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. And to stand on the Word of God. And, and you remember Jesus when He began His public ministry. At the very beginning, one of the first things that He encountered was a temptation by the devil in the wilderness. And Satan came against him with three very powerful temptations, all three of which Jesus answered with the Word of God. And ultimately, as an example to us, he could have taken the devil and made him a, a pile of ashes in an instant. But what good would that do us? We don't have that kind of power. So he's modeling for us how you handle this kind of thing. You handle it with the Word of God. Satan had no answer to the Word of God, and so he was forced to depart uh, for uh, a season. We're told further, as uh, Jude continues to enlarge the list of the characteristics of, of these uh, apostates, that they speak evil of whatever they do not know or understand. In other words, their rebellion against God's commandments and His authority reveals them, Jude says, to be profoundly ignorant spiritually, and not to be the profoundly spiritual people that they present themselves as and claim to be. And so, rather than coming to the commandments of God as we do in the Scriptures, and then humbly endeavoring to try and understand the spiritual wisdom that is found uh, behind them, they immediately respond uh, to uh, the, the uh, wisdom of the Word of God with a spirit of rebellion, and then they reject the ones that they don't like. And all of, uh, all of this 
uh, reveals, uh, revealed about them in doing so, or anyone who does the same thing today, is that they are rejecting something that they have no true understanding of. And though they claim to be more spiritual, more spiritually insightful by way of their dreams than just simple Christians like you and I who turn to the Bible, try to understand it, and then uh, uh, obey it, these are completely ignorant of Christianity. They're ignorant of its wisdom, ignorant of its power, ignorant of its spiritual dynamic, and ignorant uh, of its spiritual reality. For the simple fact that anyone who has truly been born again by the Holy Spirit and had God come into our lives and then filled with the Holy Spirit in terms of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, no such person will ever teach uh, error for the simple reason that they know intellectually, they know experientially that for all of the trials and the hardship and the self-sacrifice that is involved in living an obedient life to God in this fallen uh, world as a Christian, that they are living a life that cannot be improved upon in any way. And concerning the ignorance of someone who thinks that they can improve upon God's Word, Paul wrote in this vein in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, in a uh, blunting their idea of thinking that they are the spiritual ones and we're all ignoramuses. He wrote, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know him them because they are spiritually discerned. The great, great problem at the core of these uh, certain men that Jude is exposing here in this uh, book is actually found in the book of Jude down at verse 19. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, and then here it is, not having the Spirit. They are not born again. They are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit whatever they may think of themselves. Now, as the old saying goes, uh, the proof of the pudding is found in the eating. Uh, That is the evidence of their uh, comparative spiritual ignorance is found, Jude says, in the quality of the life that they are living. And Jude said, the, the, their wisdom had them living their lives like brute beasts. They were living subhuman lives, living uh, a, a human life on the level of an animal. And the word brute there, uh, in the original language, it carries the idea of being without reason. And so they're living their lives completely dominated by fleshly emotions, fleshly appetites, fleshly compulsions and instincts as opposed to reason. And so let's take a moment uh, here this morning in the realm of what the Bible teaches in the area of sex because this was one of the big issues that they were fighting against. God's instruction on sex uh, was at the core of their 
the re re rebellion uh, here. And so, it, as it is at the root of most of our culture's push against the Bible, but it's, al it's always been that way historically. If someone rejects and disparages God's commandments concerning sex and the, the proper expression of it in, and in terms of sexual uh, purity, they must also be willing to challenge their own views uh, concerning sexual expression with equal scrutiny. And I have found that very often these kind of people become very skilled at attacking every other moral standard that exists in the world and supremely the moral standard that is found in the Bible. But they are far less skilled at defending their own morality or their own ideas on anything, and most especially with regards to the spiritual, the physical, the emotional consequences of their morality. And this is why it's always a good idea in a discussion with them to turn the table on them in that discussion and to politely ask them, since you, respect, you reject the moral teaching of the Bible concerning sex, what is it that you believe about this subject? And what authority is your view based upon? And then what are the practical implications if everyone in the world followed your morality? And so concerning engaging in sex outside of marriage, outside of the committed environment of marriage, as the Bible teaches it is to be expressed, well, yes, engaging in that on the level of a brute beast, on the level of an animal, in the way that the animal kingdom does, it has a certain appeal to it, uh, uh, of course, otherwise it wouldn't be as popular as it is. But that's not the question. The question is, does it elevate sex or does it diminish or degrade it when compared to where God commands it is to be expressed? Is it better for two people involved uh, to make something that is intended by God to be sacred into something that is no more meaningful than just a physical uh, expression of lust, a way to relate, release uh, sexual tension, to reduce it to merely a physical act that is no more meaningful than eating a good meal or buying something materially that, uh, and special for ourselves, or in our culture where it can be brought down to such a level that it's no more special and no, uh, than changing your clothes or uh, filling your uh, gas tank up with gasoline. And so is, our, is it better for society as a whole 
Uh, does it produce a healthier, more stable, more virtuous society to have people hooking up like brute animals as opposed to a society marked by marriages in which monogamy produces stability and healthy marriages and families and also brings a stable, healthy influence into the society as well? And the answer is clear. When the picture is bigger than just myself, but the picture is the culture around me, the world around me, to say nothing to how it is viewed by God. And then what about the other great hot button of our culture, the practice of homosexuality? And of course, this has been a cultural hot button for us for about 50 years in our nation, and it is a source of tremendous hostility directed toward Christianity and the Bible because, it, because the Bible condemns it, God does, as a sin. But a good question to ask those who advocate for homosexuality as a sexual expression, whether they engage in it or they advocate it for others is to just ask the question, maybe in our own minds this morning, and that is, do you have a red line? Do you have a forbidden to go beyond line concerning sexual expression? And if you do, and every sane person does, where is that line? Menage à toi? Group sex, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality. Everyone has a line somewhere. And so you, uh, again, that's saying, so let's ask ourselves this morning, where is that line for you? And then at the very least, understand that you have a line. Again, any sane person does. And then to simply realize that the same thing that I want for myself, God takes to his, Himself. To simply realize that God has a line too. And He draws the line at heterosexuality and making homosexuality a sin. On the basis of what? On the basis of a whim? on the basis of cruelty on his part, as he's so often accused of? No, on the basis of his wisdom and his love and his design. And to realize that to practice homosexual sex is not only a sin against God's Word, but it is a sin against nature. It is a sin against the way our bodies have been created. Our sexual plumbing has been designed for a sexual relationship between a man and a woman, and not between two men, and not between two women. And all of this Paul brings out and, and enlarges wonderfully upon it in the book of Romans chapter uh, 2 for further uh, uh, becoming more familiar with the subject uh, biblically. Because as the Holy Spirit lays out in Romans chapter 2, even if a person rejects the teaching of the Bible concerning the sin of homosexual sex, 
they are not off the hook because that person must still come up with a superior logic or a superior ethic for determining what is right and what is wrong in the realm of sexual expression than the witness of design, than the witness of nature. And if you move your line to put homosexual sex on a par with heterosexual sex because people are born that way, then how do you ultimately deny anyone any sexual expression who uh, also declares themselves to be born this way, including people who want to practice uh, sexual relationships that are way over the line that is in your mind and would appall you. And the fact of the matter is, you can't. You can't and be consistent. And so now we're living in the transgender part of this whole progression, and only God knows where all of this ends, a sexual free-for-all for sure. But I can guarantee you, it will not make for a better, safer, or more stable world. The world that we live in is a very fragile world that is in need of all of the moral stability that we can give it. And moral stability is the most important stability of all. It's a very dangerous game that we're playing uh, today. As more and more people are uh, ignorantly, as Jude puts it here, uh, speaking evil of the things that they do not know. Namely, speaking evil of Christianity, the God of the Bible, speaking evil uh, of the Bible, speaking itself, speaking evil of holiness, and then replacing it with a moral ethic that encourages the entire population of the world to live like brute beasts, completely dominated by fleshly emotions and appetites and compulsions and instincts as opposed to moral reason. And as is happening today, as more and more people reject God and His uh, morality and, uh, uh, and embrace this uh, new one, and, and as if you can tell the world's population that they are free to be completely dominated by fleshly emotion and compulsions and instincts in the area of sex, and then somehow uh, then expect that they will not then carry that same freedom, that same moral mantra, if it feels good, then do it, to then carry that into every other area of their life. To somehow think that we can indoctrinate people in one area of life, that it's okay to disobey God, it's, we're smarter than Him and all of this, and that somehow they have the capacity the world does to compartmentalize so well that it will merely stay in the area of sexual expression and not wander out into every area of our life and of our society and of, of our uh, culture. And then to ask ourselves, what will that look like? What kind of society would, uh, if it feels good, do, uh, do it? What would that produce if that happens on every level, in every area of society? 
And, I, and, and you don't need me to answer the question. And I don't need you to answer the question. Because the Holy Spirit answers the question in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here's where it goes. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headlong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It ends very, very badly. God says, and we see all of the trends ourselves. Because once you introduce this idea in one area, it will then become the dominant thought and practice in every other area in people's life as opposed to the moral standard of, of God's Word. And Jude tells us that it ends very badly as well. And he tells us there that the result of such a life is that they corrupt themselves. The word corrupt doesn't mean that you're going to get a little bit of uh, corrosion on one of your uh, posts on your battery in your car. The word corruption here means to ruin or to destroy. And Jude says to live this way is to live a self-destructive life in this life and then to be consigned to eternal judgment after this life is over. You might remember that Jesus rebuked the theological liberals of His day who decided that they were not going to accept anything in the Word of God that they uh, didn't understand for uh, themselves. Now, and, and it was a group of people by the name of the Sadducees. You anytime you have the finite, you and me, in a relationship with the infinite, that is God, you're going to have to get used to mystery. You can only track with Him, I, uh, no matter how brilliant or life experience, we can only track with Him so far. But how far we can track with Him on any particular subject is enough to realize He's the only one that knows what He's talking about here. But that was the theological liberals of the ancient world and the, the Sadducees. And Jesus spoke to them because they wouldn't accept the plain teaching of the Word of God, and they felt very emboldened to explain it away. And he said, you do err. You're wrong. And then he told them why they were wrong. Not theologically, but what was wrong with them. He said, you do err, number one, not knowing the Scriptures. And then number two, not knowing the power of God. Because no one who knows the Scriptures and all of its wisdom and its beauty and its depth and its perfection or has experienced the power of God to then live the life that is described uh, in the Bible, the Christian life that we're born again into, would ever think of changing anything about it for any reason, much less in order to accommodate the practice of sexual immorality. And the cure for all of this, this profound spiritual ignorance, is to simply be born again. And that is to put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. 
and, and to, to turn to Him and repent of my sin, make Him the Lord of my life. And when I do that, the Holy Spirit comes into my life. I always put it the same way because I marvel at it every time it comes out of my mouth. To have God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit come into a human life. What kind of a miracle is that? And yet it's a miracle that every Christian has experienced. And so it begins with that, that spiritual birth. Then I begin to study the Bible with brand new eyes, enlightened eyes. The author of the Bible lives inside of me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then we begin to live the life that's described in Scripture as God gives us the, the, the will, to, the desire to live it, and then the power to live it. And once a person does that, you won't see anything in your life experience or anything you've ever been exposed to or ever will be exposed to that you look and say uh, that tops what God has to say to individual human beings who are trying to make their way on a pilgrimage through the fallenness of this world into uh, heaven. William Shakespeare, he wrote, he wrote a lot, but I'll just give you one sentence. He wrote, man, proud man, so ignorant of what he is most assured. Another way to translate it would be, man, proud man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. And never is that ignorance on a greater and fuller display than when he attempts to improve Christianity as it is described by God in the Scriptures. It is a complete folly to attempt to do so. And so we had two more marks to the description of these false teachers in terms of knowing what it is that are their characteristics and their natural bents so that we would avoid them but also be aware of them in our own lives. And then to know that this is what they really are beneath the veneer of how they present themselves. And again, they speak evil of dignitaries. They are so filled with a sense of pride in their own self-importance that they're willing to discredit and malign anyone associated with God's Word as revealed uh, in the Bible, even angels. And they speak evil of whatever they do not know or understand that is, their rebellion against God's commandments and His authority reveals them to be profoundly ignorant spiritually, not the profoundly uh, spiritual uh, or enlightened or progressive people that they claim to be. And we'll end this list, it's a three-part series through these verses, as Jude ends it when we get into verse 11 next time, as he parallels them with three notorious characters from the Old Testament, a gentleman by the name of Cain, another by the name of Balaam, and another by the name of Korah. And all of this, again, from Jude is so valuable and so practical in our day when the attack upon the truth of the Bible is, uh, is not only comes from the unsaved world, but increasingly uh, from those who call themselves Christians but are not. And Jude tells us from this little section that we're looking at right now, 
while they might be determined to be blind to their own condition, we are not to be blind to their condition and the danger of their influence. If you sit here today and you're not yet a Christian and these kind of issues uh, confuse you, or how can a God of love uh, have commandments and these kind of things, and why does He take them so seriously, and, 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 and all of, of this concerning the attacks that, uh, upon uh, the, uh, the God of the Bible, and usually the attack is that He's so unloving and He so uh, doesn't uh, understand uh, just simply because He gives commands and then He expects those commands to be obeyed. It reminds me of a quote from C.S., a book from C.S. Lewis. It's it's brief. Allow me to read it to you. C.S. Lewis wrote, You asked for a loving God. You have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way nor the cold philanthropy of a, of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of all of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as an artist's love for his work, as despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. And candidly, the fact that the God of the Bible has a backbone, so to speak, and that He is both loving and righteous is very, very refreshing to me, and it's very, very reassuring uh, to me who, like you, watches the world define love as never doing the hard thing, never saying the hard thing, never demanding the hard thing, and then congratulating ourselves on how loving we are uh, while watching people then destroy their lives a thousand different ways. And so who is really the loving one in terms of God or this new definition of love that is so often he attempts to bludgeon him with. No, God is loving in a profound way, in a deep way, in a substantial way, in a meaningful way. And again, it is a folly to attack his love simply because he provides commandments out of his love and then expects us, because it is best for us as well, to obey those commands. Where in the world would you reject a God like that on the basis of something so reasonable as that? Now, this is the God you're looking for. This is the God that you need. Jesus is the Savior that you need in order to be born again. And if you've never become a Christian, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for this morning. Think about that. The single great thing that you have been created for, no matter what you've experienced in life, 
that that can become yours in an instant here this morning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and committing now to follow Him. And we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship here this morning. If you have other prayer needs, all of you, uh, any of you in your, in your life, that you would like someone to pray for you this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its love behind it, your love. Thank you for its wisdom. Thank you that it keeps us safe. The rebel that is inside of each of us, even as a Christian, Thank you that it gives us boundaries that we so desperately need and that we wouldn't in a single lifetime be able to figure out or define for ourselves. How grateful we are for the life that we enjoy in knowing you through your Son. We want you to know from this little speck of a place on planet Earth that we are grateful for you, grateful for your commands, and grateful for the privilege of being one of your children. And Lord, we pray for the men and women that are standing before you right now for whom all of this is confusing. Whatever their indoctrination, whatever their bents, whatever's happened to them in life, and they're trying to figure things out. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this simple time that we've had in your word here this morning to in some way move them down the path toward you, which is the only path they want to be on. And so bless them. You know, how to, you know how to save people. You know how to answer questions. You know how to remove the obstacles that are being placed between us and you by a very formidable, secular, ungodly culture. And we ask that you would do that to the salvation of every single person within range of my voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Trinity, would you close us?